Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. But I am taking on, it's, it's always hard to be early to be first um, in one of these uh, one of these uh, Zoom sessions that goes on for six weeks because we are the rookies who are going to make all the first mistakes. So I know that Jews aren't so merciful, but since we're talking about atonement forgiveness, um, I hope you'll bear with me. Um, I'm going to focus uh, obviously on the, the stretch that we're about to enter, um, which is the month of Elul. And I will say that I used to think uh, that atonement happened just on one day that Yom Kippur was essentially the mother load of contrition. And as long as we abstained from food and water for 24 hours before the breakfast bagel spread, and as long as we pounded our chests for every al-chait, that long litany of sins that we recite in shul while we stand before the open ark and God's open book, that that was sufficient. I had checked the box of Jewish guilt and confession. I had made my commitments to do better next year. But then I researched every single holiday in our Jewish calendar for my book, My Jewish Year, which Rebecca kindly mentioned. That was an expedition I approached chiefly as a journalist, but which ended up, frankly, changing me deeply as a Jew. And I learned that the month of Elul, those 40 days leading up until Yom Kippur, is essential training for the Olympics of repentance. And that when we skip the work of Elul, we miss the potential of real tshuva, the return to our better selves. Rebecca, when someone is the last to be admitted, are you admitting them or should I also? No, I'm happy to. You keep going. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a very controlling Jew from New York. (laughs) You can if you want, but you definitely don't have to. I can see that. Uh, So I'll admit to you all that I at first resisted it, the idea that during the height of summer, we should start to excavate all of our flaws, dust them off, and hold them up to the light. But when I interviewed over 60 rabbis and scholars to help me flail my way through some spiritual practice that might make Elul make sense, I found that it actually upended the way I view personal reckoning. So just to back up for a minute and make sure that we're all on the same page as to why there are 40 days of Elul, It harkens back to the 40 days that the Israelites waited at the foot of Mount Sinai for Moses to come back down with the second set of tablets, hoping that God would forgive the Israelites for the sin of the golden calf. The people waited to see if Moses' entreaties on our behalf had been successful, despite God's anger at our lack of faith and quick reversion to idolatry. Similarly, we are waiting between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to know whether God will forgive us for our past missteps, praying that we will be written in the book of life for another year. But before we get to the 10 days of awe, we have serious work to do, and no two rabbis will tell you that there's one way to do it. When I took the deep dive for the first time a few years ago, I asked clergy for guidance, tell me how to make Elul count. I'm about to share the rituals and practices that they suggested, but I want to start with the most powerful of all, at least for me, hearing the shofar blast every morning for the 30 days leading up to Rosh Hashanah, of course, with the exception of Shabbat and the day before the new year itself. Those are the two times you're not supposed to blow. But what does it mean to hear an ancient trumpet that conjures instantly, I'm sure for all of us, our childhoods of Rosh Hashanahs? 
It connects us to tradition, memory, and ancestors, yes. But more urgently, it's what Maimonides described essentially as our annual wake-up call, stirring Jews to pay attention to who we are. The Rambam writes, quote, wake up, you sleepers from your sleep, and you slumberers from your slumber. Search your deeds and return in repentance. This is the idea that I hope grabs you by the collar as we approach Elul this year. How have I been asleep? It's harder than most of us admit to really answer that question honestly. But I can share what I'll be asking myself over the 40 days of introspection. How, how, how have I been asleep when it comes to my parents, to my children, to my friendships, strangers next door or across the ocean, injustices I've ignored, suffering I haven't tried hard enough to stop? Where have I, as Rabbi Yitz Greenberg puts it, been complacent? If complacency means, as the dictionary says, quote, a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself, I hope my answer is no. I'm someone pretty skilled at self-reproach. Just ask my therapist. But Eilul reminds us that we can sin not just by the bad acts we do, but also by the good acts we fail to do. And I would posit that Judaism reminds us during the month of Eilul that to ignore the shofar is to ignore the truth. The blast of the ram's horn is startling. It's jarring. It's not mellifluous or relaxing. And that's on purpose. Self-reflection should be jarring. Atonement requires us to be alert. The medieval rabbi Judah Loeb and Bazazel of Prague, he was known as the Maharal, wrote that, quote, all the month of Elul, before eating and sleeping, a person should look into his soul and search his deeds that he may make confession. The shofar reminds us to search our deeds daily. Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and her team decided that the first theme for this week of pre-Tishrei learning should be, where are we? That's what the shofar is asking us exactly. Where are you? Look at the past year. Look courageously at your errors. Don't whitewash or minimize them. Where are we right now? What sins have we committed? What mistakes have we repeated? Which resolutions from last Rosh Hashanah did we fail or forget about? Where are we during this surreal pandemic when we can't do what we usually do or see who we usually see? Where are we right now in 2020 in a very different place than we were even six, five months ago in March? That is the shofar's call during Elul. And the rabbis I interviewed for my book pointed out that the mitzvah is to hear the shofar every morning, not to blow it. But a few years ago, when I vowed to take on every commandment, I warmed to the challenge of sounding it myself. Much to the chagrin of my husband, David, who would have preferred a very different alarm clock. So I ordered a plastic shofar on Amazon. You probably know, those of you who have tried it or smelled it, that the authentic ram's horn is very expensive and it actually has a, a very a malodorous um, odor, which is probably redundant. But I was fully aware of how hard it is to get a clear sound. We've all seen the sad, bleeding attempts of designated synagogue shofar blowers whom we root for, but whom we cringe for when the horn chokes the air and the resulting sound is more like a pathetic whimper. 
Well, the instruction booklet that came in the mail with my plastic shofar suggested that one should practice by filling your mouth with water, leaving a small space on one side of your lips, and spitting out of that small opening with control. Rebecca's nodding. I'm sure she, well, she's an expert, I'm sure. Well, you can imagine how ridiculous I looked to my then teenage kid spitting over the sink over and over again, but I was determined. And here's why I am even focusing upon the difficulty of sounding the shofar trumpet. It makes sense that it's difficult. That metaphor comes back to us again. Waking up to our mistakes is hard. Facing our sins should not be easy. And in fact, if it is easy, we're not doing it right. It means we're skating over the real stuff. So how do we begin to face our sins during the summer months? Yes, the shofar is the starting gun, and it's our daily reminder. But then what? A few rabbis I interviewed suggested a practice that I tried to make my own and which I cannot recommend more highly. I chose a Hevruta, a study partner. In this case, my friend Catherine, who did it with me first. She happens to be a psychiatrist. That's always a good profession for a Hevruta. And we agreed to take one trait per day, one midah or characteristic, and just zero in on that one trait one day at a time, and then the next, and then the next, 40 days, 40 traits. A rabbi in Toronto, Modia Silver, conveniently made a list of 40 in alphabetical order. It includes anger, arrogance, compassion, courage, envy, generosity, greed, hatred, humility. You get the idea. I'm going to share the list up here. Rebecca will um, in just a minute, but you can easily create your own. Well, Catherine and I agreed to simply do this. We would write our personal reflection on that one trait as short or as long as we chose to and exchange those reflections by email by the end of the day, every day. No response from each other was needed. No dialogue was expected. That was asking too much and it wasn't the point. The point was to break our character down into smaller bite-sized pieces to slow down the self-assessment that Alul demands. Focus hard on whether you're patient. Focus hard on whether you're patient and you learn a lot. The same when you zero in on righteousness or slander. The nightly exchanges became trinkets of candor, which I collected and later could revisit. And this year, in addition to my personal transgressions, there will obviously be a different kind of spotlight. Have I been selfish in seeking safety during the pandemic? Have I talked to my parents enough when I can't be with them? I'm so glad mom's on this right now. Mom, thank you. (laughs) Have I been too silent after George Floyd's murder? Have I abstained from defending the Jewish state in the face of growing anti-Zionism? Have I made enough phone calls to my fellow congregants who are homebound? I have done this Alul practice that I describe of picking a partner and sharing thoughts on on a trade a day several times since I, I did it the first time. Once as part of a community-wide project um, that my synagogue initiated, actually thanks to my book, Central Synagogue is where I belong in New York City, and they asked us to pair up with partners we didn't know that well and follow the same list of Midot. Last year, I did it with my husband, and boy, was that eye-opening. Talk about a way to get to know someone you think you know. And it's been revelatory to look back at our reflections a year later and assess whether we've made any progress at all. My 87-year-old mother-in-law, Phyllis Shapiro, had this reaction the first time I told her I was going to attempt an Alul practice that required daily inspection. She said, 
Don't you think that's going to be miserable, tearing yourself apart for 40 days? I worried that she might be right. She often is. But what surprises me each time I engage in this Elul discipline is that the rigor offers a strange clarity and tranquility. It's a very different experience to critique oneself before Yom Kippur when you're not in shul and you're not fasting. I'm a lot more thorough on a full stomach. I take my time. I might even be harsher on my flaws because unlike on Yom Kippur, when the litany of sins are coming fast and furious with little luxury to focus on each one, this Elul practice affords a more complete accounting. Rabbi Bert Vysotsky, who teaches Midrash at the Jewish Theological Seminary, JTS in New York, he's a remarkable professor and a good friend. He told me in our interview, when you go to the therapist, you don't just go once, you keep going. The repetition of Elul allows you to open yourself, not all at once, to the things that you've closed up. I asked him how he'd respond to those who say 40 days of navel-gazing is overkill before Yom Kippur. He responded, you can't walk into synagogue cold. Let me use the shrink analogy again, he said. You don't just go into your therapy session without thinking ahead as to what you want to discuss. Thinking ahead. Atoning ahead. Elul offers the necessary runway to spiritual liftoff. Rabbi Alan Liu, who wrote what I'm sure many of you know, is one of the most arresting books about atonement. It's called This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared, The Days of Awe as a Journey of Transformation. He says that the month of Elul is, quote, a time to devote serious attention to bringing our lives into focus, a time to clarify the distinction between the will of our God and our own willfulness, to identify that in us which seeks good and that which is fatally attracted to the perverse, to find out who we are and where we are going. Think about the title of Lou's book, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. That's what the shofar counters with its insistent cry. Be prepared. Prepare yourself for self-honesty. Prepare yourself for apology. Lou writes that if we truly do the work of introspection, quote, it becomes rather more difficult to engage in a kind of self-deception and highly selective interpretation of data that we usually employ to make assessments of ourselves. God, he said, isn't as easy to deceive as we are. Rabbi Irving Yitz Greenberg, also a remarkable teacher and writer and friend, he's author of one of the classic guides to the Jewish holidays called The Jewish Way. He explains that Elul is a time for cheshbon hanefesh, accounting of the, for the soul, which means a reckoning with oneself. Quote, such moments are a time for penetrating questions and self-criticism. Just as the month before the summer is the time when Americans go on crash diets, fearing how their bodies will look on the beach, so Elul, the month before Rosh Hashanah, became the time when Jews went on crash spiritual regimens, fearing how their souls would look when they stood naked before God. So I start peeling spiritual layers off in August, trait by trait. The shofar reminds us to develop an Elul practice of granular self-assessment, but it also jars us to another realization, gratitude. Thank God I'm still here. Thank God for another year. After each Rosh Hashanah, there is always the chance I won't live to see the next. Look at how many thousands of people in the world 
maybe even in our own families, communities of friends, had no inkling last year when we recited the Unatana Tokef, the Who Will Live and Who Will Die liturgy, that COVID would take them before the next new year. And the reality is that there are many, maybe even sadly, some of us on the Zoom call who won't make it to the next year either. So the shofar kicks us in the tush and tells us to savor every single day, to pay attention to every clear breath, every great cup of coffee, every absorbing book, amazing piece of music, bike ride, hilarious conversation, time with a friend, even six feet apart, the simplest, smallest gifts. Our granular atonement can focus us on granular blessings. Rabbi Sharon Brous, whom you all know, who founded the spiritual community Ikar in many of your neighborhoods in Los Angeles, said in one of her Yom Kippur sermons, and it appears actually in my book, stop everything now. Stop everything right now and ask yourself, who am I? Is this who you want to be in the world? I know how busy we all are. I'd like to stop that ringer right now. <laughs> Excuse me, I can't draw up my, my landline. But high holidays, she says, come and say, comes and says, hit, hit pause. This is the only life that you are given. And her colleague in L.A., whom you also know well, is a good friend of mine, Rabbi David Wolpe, who I know is going to be one of your teachers for this pre-Tishrei program. He wrote about these holidays, and he's also in my book, You Do Not Have Forever. Repent now. Repair now the broken relationships of your life. There is little time to craft a self in this world before life is taken. And finally, the shofar during Elul reminds us to read one particular psalm every single day, twice a day. Psalm 27, the one that entreats God to protect us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do not hide your face from me. Do not forsake me. Do not abandon me. Do not abandon me. It's a terrifying thought that God might forsake us. Maybe that idea is too scary for a child in your life, but we are old enough to tolerate it and be galvanized by it. If I wasn't sure I had another year, how would I live this one? If I really look squarely at how I behave with the people closest to me, with my colleagues, my classmates, and yes, when I interact with that grocery clerk, the Uber driver, or the flight attendant, am I wholly proud of my conduct? Is there really nothing that I can improve? Reading the 27th Psalm daily can, at first glance, feel pretty redundant. What is the point of repeating verses that may or may not have been penned by King David day after day? But just like the recurrent sound of the shofar each morning, there is resonance, I would argue, in repetition. Each reprise offers another chance at meaning. Look at how many repetitions there are in our tradition. Ten days of awe, seven days of Sukkot, eight days of Hanukkah, eight days of Passover. We count the Omer for seven weeks. We count the days of Elul for 29. Each day is different, so the same words take on a different shape depending on where you are. Some have taught that Psalm 27 also encompasses the three tentpole holidays of the fall. The words, God is my light, refers to Rosh Hashanah. My salvation refers to Yom Kippur. And God will shelter me in his sukkah, obviously refers to Sukkot. I love the efficiency of our tradition that so often just puts in one place 
so much meaning that embedded in one gorgeous poem is our entire roadmap for the fall calendar. I started with this so far and I want to end with it because we haven't looked at the prescribed blasts themselves. Tekiya, Shivarin, Teruah, Tekiya. Tekiya is one long note and has been said to be like a summons. We are being called. Shivarin literally means breaks or fractures. And it's three medium length notes that some say can remind us of weeping. Teruah is that series of short staccato blasts, blasts that some have compared to a spiritual alarm clock. Contrition starts early. It's spurred by a noise, a trumpet that one cannot ignore. Atonement isn't a passive ceremonial rite. It's a bracing charge to be more honest and a precious chance to return to our better selves. Psalm 27 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, have mercy on me, answer me. Before we ask for mercy, we have to tell the truth. And the shofar reminds us as loudly as possible. Thank you. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, sure, And I realize I never shared the midot. Would you like me to share oh. them? And do you want to sure. say a word about? Okay. Yeah, I'll share the midot, but I hope there'll be some questions. Cause, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, what, after, after um, Abigail shares a little bit about these different midot, um, if people want to take this time to think of some questions, I know I have many. So if anybody doesn't have any, I have a lot. Um, but I would love to hear from you uh, and not and not from me any longer. So I'll pass this over to talk about the Midot a little bit, and then we can move to questions. Yeah. And I would just say about the Midot, again, they by themselves from this rabbi, I found them years ago, and then they disappeared from the internet. That sometimes happens. But if you actually, there's two ways. One, we'll share it now. But if you just actually search my name and Midot, it actually comes up because before my book, all of these um, holidays appeared in real time as articles. So I think the full list is in the article for the forward. So if you just search Pogreb and Midot, they'll come up. So Rabbi Shots, however you want to handle things, I hope people won't leave me hanging. I need to be interrogated. I can be criticized. To a point. <laughs> I can send the list to you as long as that's okay. Um, as long yeah. as it can be shared, I'm happy to share it. Yeah. Um, okay, questions. Anybody, you can either raise your hand. Not many of you are sharing your photo with us, which is totally fine, but that also means I can't see you if you're raising your hand. So if you would like to write your question in the chat, um, if you would like to virtually raise your hand, whatever you wish, we would love to hear your questions, your your interest, your comments on such a beautiful take on this time. Yeah, Barbara. Um, I just want to make a comment on, Dr. on Rabbi Lou. He was the rabbi at Beth Sholem mm. after I came to Los Angeles and married my sister. He was an interesting man because he, he kind of dropped out of Judaism for a long time, became a Buddhist, mm-hmm. was into... Um, being at the uh, monastery, I'm not sure if that's the right word for it, uh, down the peninsula in Monterey area for quite a while, but he was a really good rabbi. He, he, he really was very nice man. The teaching that he gave to my sister and her fiance at that time was, was really excellent. Mm-hmm. I've just ordered his book because of your saying it and, Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. 
No, he's uh, he's amazing, and and so many rabbis who I interviewed. Was amazing. He's deceased. Yeah, he uh, that one of the ways that he that that is sort of a a very sad irony is that he actually died after meditating, which was you know just one of those poignant stories of I think he had just actually finished a place that he was teaching a retreat. Um, So yeah, we do talk about him in the past tense, but his book lives on. I think very in a very current way. I think every rabbi gets to that book a little bit too late in their preparation <laughs> and says, next year, I'll start it earlier. Um, because it's such a great book for, for really entering into this time. Jennifer wrote, do you, did you include your children in the Elul effort for your book? Great question. You know, I didn't, but that, that was going to be my next kind of pitch to them and possibly even this year, although I haven't broached it yet. But I will say that there were a few people at Central Synagogue who did it with their teenage kids and said it was one of the most incredible uh, mm-hmm. things they've ever, ever done. And that it surprised them on many levels. One, realizing that, you know, you don't ask your children these questions uh, kind of to look at their own traits in that way, but also that they were sharing themselves. You know, there's often sort of more of a one-way street parent to child but it was a, a much more um, reciprocal uh, kind of exchange. So I, I do know people have done it and said it was kind of transformative for their relationship. Do you think that you would, in this next iteration with children, do you think you would only use your children or do you think you would do similar to what you did with the other rabbis and try mm-hmm. to get children of different ages to to weigh in? You to weigh in to do it with each other or to... Yeah, yeah, to just have different perspectives, you know, because yeah. it's at different developmental stages, obviously, they're going to have different, different kind of connections. And though a five year old might not be able to, to, to say something as deeply connected to Torah, the, you know, the way that a that a young child connects to a holiday is sometimes like the most profound, because they have no filter as to how they're connected. It's really true. And I would also say, Rebecca, if I can call you that. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, one of the things that I introduced, and I, I write about this in my book, um, for uh, Kol Nidre that we would do at my family's uh, dinner table, which my, my mother trusted me to take over after her years <laughs> of, running, of running that 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 supper, was to actually put in a basket um, everybody's name who was at the table, everybody in the mm. family table and you just picked a name and had to apologize to them for something and at first it can sound like putting on the spot but it was actually remarkably fluid I mean it wasn't hard to come Mm -hmm. up with a moment that you regretted Mm -hmm. and just to have to do it face to face which you know is 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 the Jewish requirement you can't Mm -hmm. can't phone these these uh, apologies in you're supposed to actually face the person um that was quite powerful and it also allowed us to hear each other's which which I think made us braver about our mm-hmm. candor. So that goes to, I, I think you can, you can do that with an eight year old too. Right. Um, right. So yes, I think that's a great idea as so all of these things, I wouldn't even call them da- dumbing down, but maybe simplifying a bit, even a, a six year old can, can know that they made some mistakes and, and, and have the habit of, I think once a year talking about them in some way. Sure. Sure. Um, Rachel Green asked the question, uh, what is the interplay or relationship between this Elul practice and your personal therapy? <laughs> oh, gosh. That's a great question. Who asked that? 
Rachel. Rachel. She it's did qualify it by saying it was a personal question, which I didn't say, but <laughs> now it's a personal question. Are you a therapist, Rachel? <laughs> um, you know, it's such a good question because, you know, the truth of it is, is it's so intertwined as to sometimes be inseparable. But I do think that sometimes I think the metaphor of therapy, which, which actually came from, again, Bert Vysotsky and, and others, um, I talked to Michael Strasfeld also mentioned therapy, is that, you know, we, we're sometimes not even honest with our therapist. And we're like, I'm paying you and I'm still lying. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still whitewashing. That, right. you know, I think sometimes people don't even realize how hard it is to tell the truth about themselves. Um, so I would say that there's a lot of interplay between this little practice and my personal therapy, which is I'm really trying to not just self-flagellate and say, you know, these are the ways that I'm, that I'm terrible or I'm disappointed in myself, but to kind of not just be forgiving of myself. I owe oh, that mushy language of having to forgive yourself is something I, I don't have a lot of patience for, even though I know it's important, but I think it's more to kind of that idea of a little slowing down this process, um, I think is very also intertwined with therapy, which is you're not going to do it all at once. In therapy, you have 50 minutes to 45 minutes to talk about what you want to for the week. And, and in a little, if you, if you separate it out each day, it's, it's not that suddenly you're just overwhelmed by the task of having to look back at yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, my mom had a question which is, uh, I don't know if you saw it, Rebecca, why do we worry about God abandoning us? Abandonment is a hard word. Plus there's that line about do not abandon us in our old age. Isn't that an odd thing to attribute to God and how should we think about it? Um, leave it to my mom to ask any <laughs> question. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I'll admit that I'm working on right now for the forward, which is my next series, is a series about conversations about God um, and actually, Rabbi Clickfeld is one of the, the rabbis in the series. I, I'm having 18 conversations um, with, and each one is an animating kind of urgent question. I think often people ask about God. Um, and Adam gave me a wonderful interview. I hope you will all uh, tune into that when it starts running in the forward. But it goes to what my mom, Letty, is asking here, which is this idea of, of God abandoning us or being with us. And so many of the rabbis I've talked to have described God's presence more than God as a being. They've talked about God kind of walking with us, um, a sense of presence, not just in protection, but in um, expectation that God is asking something of us, but also not giving up on us. And so I think abandonment in this case is not that God is literally going to turn um, God's back, but that there is a sense of feeling abandoned if you if you kind of lose faith um, that in a way it's a two-way street and that you have to kind of stay in this even when you face hurdles and part of atonement is the same like even when it's hard is that to stay in it to stay in the fight of it then God will be with you and it's it's more that God abandons you in that abandoned sense if you abandon what God asks, which is that you do the hard work too. Um, you know, the, the other thing that so many of the rabbis in this God series have described is that idea that we are partners in creation and it's our job to, you know, to keep not completing the work, but trying to improve the world, trying to repair the world. And I think in that sense, it's that we can't abandon God and then God won't abandon us. The project is a mutual one. So I hope that 
helps a little bit. And, and mom and I can talk offline. <laughs> I didn't see that question. So thank you for bringing it. Did, do you have any other questions that people wrote to you privately? Um, let's see. Karen wrote, pro, pro, oh, that's so nice. I love the book. I read each chapter as the holiday came up. Thank you for sharing your journey. Well, thank you, Karen. I that was that the Karen, that was the same person who I said at the beginning. She, gave, oh. she was the one who gave me your book. So oh, that's so nice. We love Karen Cast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, she's not only reading it; she's she's giving it out. <laughs> great. And then, oh, Barbara asked, "What are the blasts of the shofar used during a lul, or is it a single blast?" That is a very good question. And I actually researched that before we 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 met today because there is some, it seems, confusion around exactly. My sense of it, Rebecca, maybe you want to answer, is that sure. it is similar to Rosh Hashanah? Yeah. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and that actually can be found online, like, you know, but it's it's the ones that I described um, in the Hebrew and, you know, the long blast and then the, the short ones and then the staccato ones. Rebecca, do you want to add to that at all? Yeah. So I, that's exactly right. There's really not not much else to add. The, the one thing that I will just say is that the... It looks like you're adding yourself again. Do you mean to be doing that, Abby? No. It says you're in the waiting room. But maybe it's maybe it's someone else on a computer at your house. Oh, that's true. Maybe I'll, I'll see if... I'll can... let the second Abigail Pogrebin in. Okay. okay. Um, so, so just to answer the question... Um, like for, for right now, right, when a lot of our communities, depending on where you are, and not everybody on this call is in Los Angeles, so I'll only speak for my own community, when you're not gathering together, if you're not going to, be, going to be able to do all those blasts yourself or hear all those blasts, it is just imperative that you hear the blast of the shofar, right? So so there is kind of a minimum and a maximum. We at our shul will do one set of the of the shofar blast, as Abby just said. Um, but, but if it is the case that you can only hear it by doing one long blast, or if you can only get out those little blasts, um, that's, that's totally fine for Elul, um, for Rosh Hashanah, and then for the end of Yom Kippur, um, we obviously want to hear, want to hear what is written in our liturgy to be hearing all of those blasts. But actually, this is a, and then Karen has a question, but I'm going to intercept and, and ask one because it has to do with the with the shofar. Um, mm. I'm curious to know your, because you just spoke so beautifully on the shofar and the, and the power behind hearing the shofar, in a world where so many of us are going to be doing high holidays online, um, and for some of us, that means that the shofar is going to have to be done either by us or in the street to hear someone else do it if we're not able to do it ourselves. How does the, how does the, uh, impact or the power of the shofar change when it's not in full community for you? Um, mm. Does it, is it something that you really can, I know you said you did it alone um, with a plastic shofar for a little while. So how, how does, and you don't have to go through everything you just said and change it, but how is that overall power different when it's you or just a small group of people? Yeah, I think that it's it's a great question. And in a, a funny way, I mean, part of why it's such a great question is because it really was different. It really, in a weird way, I mean, both times I get choked up, I'm just, I have that visceral response to the shofar. But there is something about, you know, wherever you are, you can kind of have your Judaism um, mm -hmm. that sort of... Um, 
that sense of not just empowerment, which is another sort of over word that is overused, but yeah. we, we feel, or I felt oh, so very dependent on clergy. And I actually, as a journalist, feel very dependent on clergy for the right reasons. I am, I am the learner. I am the pilgrim here. I need all of you, and I want to lift you up. You're the ones who have done the heavy lifting and continue to do it every day. That's not just paying respect. I think our teachers are crucial to making this stuff come alive. But I also feel like if we are entirely dependent and we can never feel like we can kind of create sacred space on our own, and my goodness, look at us right now, when we yeah. can't be together, that's more true than ever. Um, I think that there's something very powerful in saying, I can hear that sound in my own home. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not, I, uh, to, to whomever's question, I guess was Barbara's about, about the, you know, which blast should you hear? I follow the, the mitzvah that you describe, which is I just wanted to hear it once. And otherwise yeah. my family is going to, I think, excommunicate or exile <laughs> me from my home. Um, so once was enough and it was hard enough to get, to get that sound. But I, I do think it's kind of like, you know, and so much in Judaism is we will do and we, we will do and we will understand mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. just do, just the doing was kind of emotional. Just the hearing was, was emotional. And, mm-hmm. and the privacy of it, the fact that no one was with me, um, actually had its own, its own power. Thank you. And Karen asked what the new project is. My guess is that she's referring to the forward project. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you for asking, Karen. So basically I, um, this is going to be on paper. Not, it's not the podcast. I do the podcast for tablet magazine and sadly it's ending. Um, you know, Sim we will have finished the entire cycle and I hope some of you will go back and listen. Um, if you want to, they're just 10 minute, uh, segments. So they're very digestible on your morning, uh, constitutional, whatever your walk. But <laughs> so Dove Linzer and I have done the podcast, which is uh, what you've all seen many times in different forms. We, we argue about the Barsha uh, of the week um, and for 10 minutes. But, and, that's, and that will come to an end uh, in the fall. This is starting, I think we're, it's going to be starting um, in, uh, not next week or the week after, whenever Alul is actually beginning. Is that the 19th, I think, Rebecca? The 21st, um, yeah. Okay, 21st this is what we need our rabbis for. But around <laughs> that time, and it's each, each interview is looking at one question about God, which is not to oversimplify it, but to acknowledge that sometimes our barriers are, does God love us? Uh, does God punish us? Does God hear us? Um, those questions are, uh, is God with us always? Is God everywhere? Um, does it matter what God's gender is? These are the questions that each rabbi selected, and they also selected one text to kind of elucidate their answer. Um, so they, these are going to run one at a time, one question at a time, one rabbi at a time for 18 columns. And they're not that long. They're about 1,500 words. So um, I hopefully maybe can send a, a note to all of you as to when it starts. But um, it's going to be in the forward, which is, as you know, the, it was Yiddish is now for the last 120-something years in both. Um, but it's amazing paper, and it's edited by Jody Rodoran, who uh, used to be the Jerusalem Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Hmm. Any other, I'm just scrolling through to see if I missed anything. Any other questions? People can also feel free to talk if you would like to share your question with words. <laughs> you can instead of, instead of chatting it. Okay, I'll ask, I'll ask one more question to see if we get any, anyone else. Um, 
So this book, for those of us who have not yet read it, um, goes through each and every holiday, as you mentioned before. And I am very curious, as someone who has read through this book, um, what was your favorite holiday to kind of go more deeply into? I, I assume that you came to some of these holidays with more information. In fact, in some of them, you actually explain how this was not a holiday that you had any uh, connection to, and now we're finding this connection. But which holiday really brought you more either interest or challenge when you were when you were writing the book and going through it? Yeah, great question. I would just I would pick out two, and the first is Simchat Torah when we you know mm. celebrate the, the the end of the cycle. First of all, I didn't realize, and so much of the revelation of researching this book is that a lot of these holidays are more recently invented than I think a lot right. of Jews know. Um, and the rabbis essentially decided, you know, it used, we used to read the cycle over three-year period instead of one. Um, there, there should be, when you've completed it, basically a party. Like they said, we should have a party. <laughs> That's essentially, yeah. as you know, what happened. And and, and the idea that um, I interviewed um, Asher Lopatin, you may know, um, yeah, a wonderful course. rabbi, um, who, who, who pointed out that when we dance with the Torah, we are basically singing lie, lie, lie. There's not a lot of Hebrew, that it is a very kind of democratic celebration compared to others where you really have to have to have mastery and you have to have kind of um, the, the um, you know, the, the mass, the, the, the Hebrew and the vernacular um, of our holidays. Here you can kind of come to this party wherever you are with, how, with however much or how little you mm-hmm. know. And, and literally, I asked everyone, like, where do I go for Simchat Torah? Because in this book, as you know, I, I go to all, all over the country um, yeah. to, to talk to rabbis. But literally, to a, to a rabbi, they said that the Studio 54, the place you had to be for Simchat Torah, was B'nai Jeshurun, BJ yeah. in New York. Um, and so when I got to BJ, literally, the line on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock at night was around the block. And these were like the demographic that every Jewish organization I know is like pleading to get under their umbrella. These were 20s and 30s who had lined up for Simchat Torah. And then when you got in there, it was like you were at mid-wedding party, mid-reception, where the dancing was sweaty and it was ecstatic and people were doing kind of conga lines, essentially, and going under each other. And they were singing these beautiful nigun, nigunim, but it was just kind of um, exultant, exuberant, and in a way, and by the way, it helps that I think the Orthodox have single malt scotch before, before there's a holiday, but it was just unfettered in a way that even for I, I consider myself an extrovert, but I'm not someone who wants to dance with strangers, and particularly it felt kind of, you know, very new and awkward to me, and you're just mm-hmm. kind of swept up in it. So mm-hmm. that to me was, you know, talk about getting out of your comfort zone. If any of yeah. you have never had that experience. I'm like, find your, find your Simchat Torah party. Um, and then the other one I would just say very quickly, because I know we're winding down is, is Hanukkah. You know, Hanukkah, I was raised with, you know, the best Hanukkah party of all time, thanks to, to my mother and uh, never was someone who envied Christmas because of it. But I really didn't understand until I did this book that the story of the Maccabees is a lot more complicated and that there essentially is, this is a very, powerful Jew versus Jew moment. It's not just um, the mean Antiochus um, uh, against uh, our, our hero, the, the Maccabees, you know, Judah Maccabee. It's actually um, that, the Maccabee, that, the, that, that the Maccabees were essentially the zealots of their time. 
and that they did not tolerate the, the Hellenists, the one who were kind of falling in love with Greek culture, the Jews who were losing their difference. And when I um, interviewed Adin Steinsaltz, who's this legendary Talmud scholar and, and translator of Talmud, he, I think, worked decades uh, to translate the entire thing. And, I, and he's very, you know, wispy and, and a little bit shrunken now, but it's still a powerhouse um, in his intellect and teaching. And he, he was very harsh about Hanukkah. He said it is a warning. Hanukkah is a warning against Jews to not water down your difference, your Judaism. And that essentially, like, you know, as one other rabbi said, you know, there are four bases in baseball. And you can say there are five, but then it's not Judaism anymore. It's not baseball anymore. Well, that's right. essentially what they're saying is that, you know, be careful how much you water down your Judaism. And I, as a Reformed Jew, am a little bit defensive about those who think that Reformed Judaism is, is Judaism light. So I was sort of hearing in this teaching, like, what is he saying about the modern moment? Are we kind of allowing ourselves to, to kind of smooth out the things that distinguish us? And, and particularly Hanukkah basically said that there was a, a fight for difference, that this is, you know, and, and you can judge it or not judge it. Um, yeah. Some of us are uncomfortable with some of the ultra-Orthodox um, messaging, and particularly in Israel today. Um, but let's have that conversation. I think that's a conversation we don't have enough. Um, just about our own internecine tensions and how Hanukkah can bring them to the fore. Sure. Thank you. That was a beautiful answer. Um, so Sue actually has a final answer, a final question, excuse me, that I think is a beautiful question to end on because it will leave us with the work that we really need to be doing based on the presentation that you gave um, for this time that will lead us into the high holidays. So the question is, can you give a few details on how the exchange of traits um, works with a learning partner if we aren't familiar with the practice. Right. Thank you, Sue, for asking. And um, basically, the way we did it was we took this list. And again, these are traits that you can, you know, traits, you can make them up. It's it's nice that it exists. So it's if you want to follow this list. And again, these are, I think there are 40. I have never actually, like, or I haven't counted recently. Um, and some would argue that there's 30. Um, Rebecca knows this, in the run-up to Rosh Hashanah, there's 30 days from, from the beginning of the lul. But we did it all the way through to Yom Kippur. So that's for 40 days, 40 traits. So you pick one trait a day and say, remind each other in the morning, don't forget we're doing arrogance today, <laughs> okay? And then by the end, by the time you go to sleep, you have emailed your partner, your friend, your whomever, Whatever your reflection is on how, on your own arrogance, whether you think I'm not arrogant at all, whether you think, you know, it reminds me of a moment when I was arrogant or the general idea of I see that I am arrogant or I appear to be arrogant in these cases. However you want to, it can be a sentence, it can be a paragraph. Ideally, it would not be a book because that's going to be, I think, a little bit burdensome to your partner. And all we would do is make sure we had emailed or put in the subject line, arrogance um, or the next, you know, courage. And then just my reflection, I would send it to Catherine by the end of the day. And what I did at the end, and it's up to you, is I cut and pasted all of my reflections into one document so that the next year I could look back um, and kind of see where where I am today. And, and Catherine, I would, and I would, sometimes I went to sleep without having gotten her, her arrogance reflection. I would wake up to it, but it was kind of wonderful um, to see someone also unfolding themselves to you on a daily basis. What's nice about not having to respond 
is that otherwise, if you don't, you feel like you've left someone hanging with a lot of, of honesty and vulnerability. And sometimes, to be honest, we did respond. But I found that that sometimes makes it a little bit more demanding because you feel like I got to respond because she responded and you have 15 emails when you really want to stay. The discipline of one a day is hard enough. So I hope that that helps. And I just want to thank Rebecca enormously for asking me to be part of this. And obviously Rabbi Klickfeld as well, but um, uh, Rabbi Schatz has done such an amazing job corralling many of us Jews and teachers. Um, so thank you so much for everything you're doing. And I look forward to being on many of these teachings. Thank you. This was such really just such a treat and such a beautiful way to start this process, but also just a day. I feel like I'm going into my day with a lot more to think about. Um, and I really, it, that's all to you. I really, really, really appreciate it. Again, I, I, I am not getting paid to say this. I really suggest that everyone read this book. It's a beautiful book. It's also a beautiful time of year to start this book because you can start at the beginning and go through all the holidays um, as as they're written in here. And I just want to add that I think there was this premise that you gave us at the beginning about asking ourselves questions and making sure that we are really speaking to speaking to ourself as to what those questions are that we need to ask who we are, who we've been to someone else. And and you're right that when we recited uh, Unatana Tokef last year, we had no idea that that would be such a poignant prayer to be saying, such powerful words that we would never interpret the same again. And that every year we're just not sure. And so to take this time in a positive way, not in a doomsday um, kind of thinking, but in a powerful way of thinking about who I am and who I want to be and the work that I'm going to do to get there and allowing those sounds of the shofar to be the different kinds of calls out or in that we need to be able to do that work. So thank you so, so, so much. It really was such a pleasure to have you and I'm excited for our communities to have this relationship with you and to continue and um, Shana Tova to everybody. You all a very meaningful Elul, whether you um, you buy a plastic shofar or not. Yeah. Um, and thank you, Rebecca, for mentioning my Jewish year. Um, it's it's nice to have a book that kind of does is time is as timeless as as our people. So yeah. I, I that's not to compliment. It's just to say that these holidays come around every year. <laughs> so um, the book kind of does does take you through them. So thank you all. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.